Thanks, Peter, for the reading of the word. Good morning, everyone. It's, it's nice to see uh, all of you here this morning. Most of you recovering from sickness, and some of our members are still battling with illness, so let's remember to keep them in prayer. It's, it's also nice to see some visitors and some familiar faces here this morning. As we continue in the, the Gospel of Mark that Peter and I have been preaching the last few weeks, two questions come up repeatedly. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus? Is he a good person? Is he God? Did, did he come to show us the way or did he just teach us how to live a morally good life? Last week we looked at what does it mean to follow him. As Peter pointed out, it, it leads to a life of self-sacrifice, a life where we deny ourselves, where we pick up our cross and we follow Jesus. And we've seen in the last two weeks that the world has such a great and different perspective on who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, that we as Christians need to be reminded of this as we come to the gospel. As we will see today, what it means to follow Jesus based on who he is will become very important to the disciples, especially the three disciples who see Jesus being transfigured, but also for us as we hear the word today. The glory of who Jesus is and what he came to do as he prepares to suffer on the cross is what we'll be focusing on today as we see Jesus being revealed on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And for that reason, the sermon today is titled, The Son of God Revealed. The Son of God Revealed. Where we are in the story in Mark is not difficult. Mark reminds us in verse 2 that we are six days, six days later. So six days after Peter's confession of who Jesus is, six days after Jesus has taught his disciples that they will suffer, that they will have to pick up their cross and follow him. So this teaching of self-sacrifice, picking up our cross and following Jesus, would have been very fresh in the minds of the disciples. And as we look at this passage today, you will see that there's two main points or two movements in the text. We see Jesus being revealed in glory on top of the mountain. And we see Jesus teaching his disciples what it means to follow him as they come down the mountain. So there are two main points in the sermon. The first being, and I'll be focusing on this first, the glorious Messiah revealed on top of the mountain. The glorious Messiah revealed on top of the mountain. So follow with me in verse 2. We see Jesus taking up his three followers up a mountain. And it says that he was transfigured before them. Now, for many of us, I don't know about you, but I'm very visual when I read the word. You know, when I read about Jesus feeding the multitudes, I get a picture of, of Jesus having the bread, having the fish, and then sort of like popcorn popping and just becoming more, the, you know, the bread becoming more and him feeding them. So when we look at transfiguration, what does it mean? You know, if you try in your mind's eye to think of a person being transfigured, it's really difficult. So the Greek word for transfiguration carries the root word it means to change, metamorphosize. It, it's a word that does not occur a lot in the Greek Bible. In fact, it only occurs four times. And in each instance, it refers to a radical transformation. We see in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, he states that we are being transformed or metamorphosized as we behold the glory of God. We become metamorphosized. We become transformed when we become Christians. 
to get a nice image in our head, it's like when a worm becomes a butterfly. That's what this metamorphosis implies. We as Christians are worms when we are non-Christians and we become butterflies. We change. Our nature becomes something completely different. But in Mark's gospel, it doesn't appear to refer to Jesus' nature being changed. We see in the gospel of Mark, Jesus' outward appearance changing in accordance with his nature. So again, to view the butterfly analogy, Jesus was revealed as the butterfly that he was. The disciples saw a worm and the veil was pulled back from their eyes to see Jesus in glory. He's not the worm or just this human that they think he is, but he's a butterfly. He is the glory of God revealed. And he reveals his glory to them in three distinct manners, three distinct ways. So the first picture of Jesus' identity in glory revealed to these three men is that he is the blameless son of man. We see Mark describing this metamorphosis of Jesus as something which was very white, dazzling. It was almost blinding to the disciples. And this is the image that Daniel gives us of the son of man or the ancient of days. When he says that I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothes was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So in this transfiguration, Jesus is revealed as the sinless, blameless ancient of days that the Old Testament promised, that the Jews were looking forward to. He is the messianic figure promised to the Jews, promised in the Old Testament. This is who Jesus is. His glory being revealed to these three men was as the glorious Son of Man. And as if, you know, this revelation of Jesus, bright as snow, white, dazzling, wasn't enough, He appears with two Old Testament patriarchs, Elijah and Moses. And so the second glimpse which the disciples, as well as we, get into the identity of Jesus is that he is a greater Jewish leader or the fulfillment of the prophets and the law. It's difficult for us as modern readers to see the significance of Moses and Elijah because many of us are not well equipped in our Old Testament understanding. So just a quick glimpse into who Moses and Elijah were and are as we read the Old Testament. Firstly, we see Moses as the great leader who leads God's people out of Egypt. He's this great leader who leads the people out of exile into the promised land. Well, not into the promised land, but to the promised land. Elijah was also a deliverer of Israel, not from foreign oppressors, but from worshipping the false gods of Baal. And as we read in Malachi 4, we also see both Elijah and Moses preparing the day of the Lord, preparing the revelation of the day of God. Israel is reminded to remember the instruction of Moses while Elijah is said to prepare the hearts of the people for the day of Yahweh. So whether you view Moses and Elijah as the law and the prophets, or whether you view them as those who prepare the way of the Lord, the fact stays that they are the ones preparing the way for the Messiah. Moses through instruction or the law, and Elijah by softening the hearts of the people or through prophecy. So in their appearance, Mark tells us that we should recognize that they share in this role of preparing the way 
of the coming Messiah. The identity of Jesus is therefore revealed as this long-expected Messiah, as well as the one of whom the whole Old Testament points to. He is ultimately the one who instructs us. He is ultimately the fulfillment of the role of Moses. He instructs us, and he is also the one who prepares our hearts. In this story, it's also funny to see Peter's response. I think it's, it's very bizarre that in Jesus standing here with Moses and Elijah, Peter's response is, oh, well, uh, let's, let's build three tents. Let's, let's keep this, let this moment going. And at first, this might seem very stupid to us. You know, why, why is Peter wanting to have this moment lost? Can he not just, you know, be in the moment and enjoy it for what it is? But I think it's, it's interesting that when we look at specifically the Greek being used here, Peter is saying, I want to erect three tabernacles for you, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And so he's actually saying, I want to do that which God has promised to do for us in Exodus, where God promised that he would once again tabernacle with his people. Yet he's missing the point that the tabernacle of God is standing right in front of him. The dwelling place of God with men will live among us. He, he lived among us, as John tells us in his gospel, as well as in Revelation. So, yes, Peter, as a pious Jew, recognized the significance of God's kingdom being revealed to him, God's presence in front of him. He recognized that a tabernacle needs to contain this amazing, glorious moment did not realize that the tabernacle of God was standing right in front of him. And then thirdly, Jesus was already transfigured, this dazzling, white, glorious figure, along with Moses and Elijah, as if both of these things were not enough, a voice comes from heaven. This voice tells them two important things. This is my son. Listen to him. I think this is a very important aspect and role in the Gospel of Mark. And I think this is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark as a whole. And in our Gospel understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him. Just a quick refreshment of sonship of Jesus and the significance thereof. I know Peter's preached on the sonship of Jesus when Jesus was baptized and God proclaimed Jesus to be His Son. But two things. So firstly... The fact that Jesus is the Son of God means that He shares in God's nature. C.S. Lewis has a nice quote in explaining this where he says, Humans have human children. Like birds lay eggs and they have bird kids, they have chicks. Humans produce humans. So the fact that Jesus is the Son of God means that He shares in God's divine nature. He is God. And then secondly, the sonship of Jesus also points us to the special relationship shared between Jesus and God the Father. This inseparable bond is something which the Jews would have understood. Many of us in modern contexts don't see the important aspect of father-son relations as the Jews would have. But this father-son relationship was a very high respected and very valued role and relationship in the Jewish understanding. So with God proclaiming that this is my son, he's both saying that Jesus is God and Jesus shares in a special relationship with God that no one else does. It's also interesting to note 
In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is only called the Son of God a few times. Right At his baptism, he hears God the Father speak to him, saying, You are my Son. A few times the demons also call him the Son of God, yet again, Jesus is the only one hearing this pronouncement of his sonship. Up to this point, no person has seen or heard that Jesus is the Son of God. So this mountain of glory functions as a turning point where we see Jesus as the Son of God being revealed to humanity for the very first time. And we see this revelation of Jesus as the Son of God as not being a revelation out of these three men themselves. They did not come to this understanding because of their wisdom or their knowledge. God had to reveal this to them. God had to say this to them. God had to speak to these three men and reveal Jesus as His Son. And this should ultimately, when we look at this text, lead us to pray more. Right? When we see this, we should recognize that God needs to reveal Jesus as His Son to us and to our non-believing family members and our non-believing friends. We should pray that God would do this in our nation, here in Norway, that God would reveal Jesus as the Son of God to the people in Norway because they won't come to this knowledge by themselves. So when we look at the story of glory on the mountain, it, it harkens back to a very popular story in the Old Testament. right? If, if you read this and, and you were seeing parallels between this story and God revealing Himself to Moses on Sinai, you'd be correct. There are great parallels between these. For example, Mark, noting that it was six days after the teaching to Peter, Moses was said to take six days to the top of the mountain. We also see throughout the Old Testament, as well as the New, that mountains play a significant role in the ministry of Jesus, but also in how God encounters humanity. The Mount of Transfiguration is ultimately then the place of encountering God by these three disciples. God encounters humanity on mountains in the Old Testament, and He does so in the New as well. We also see the face of Jesus shining in Matthew and Luke in their accounts of the Transfiguration, which is similar to Moses, whose face shone. But I think it's important to, to note the difference, right? Moses was said to reflect the presence of God, similar to the moon reflecting the sun. The moon doesn't have its own light. It reflects the sun. But Jesus wasn't the reflection of the presence of God. He was the presence of God. He was the sun. He wasn't like the moon reflecting the sun. He was the very presence of God revealed to these three disciples. And then finally, in both instances, we see the voice of God coming from a cloud, speaking the word of God to those who hear. The key to understanding the transfiguration, in my opinion, doesn't only lie in its Old Testament illusions. I think it's important for us to see the significance of the Old Testament in this, but I think it's important for us to see what God tells these three disciples as they see Jesus being transfigured. He tells them, this is my son, listen to him. This recalls the words of Moses, who told the Israelites that God will one day raise up a prophet like me. You must listen to him in Exodus or Deuteronomy 18. And throughout the gospel, we see Jesus pleading with the people, listen to me. Are you without understanding? Open your eyes. Are you deaf? You need to listen. 
And what is it that they should hear? Well, we see before the transfiguration, he told them something. And directly after the transfiguration, he tells them something. And it's that he must suffer and die. But that he will be resurrected. So the suffering of Jesus both comes before the transfiguration and after the transfiguration. And we, as well as the disciples, should listen to Jesus. The transfiguration, therefore, is a reminder that the suffering which Jesus, as well as us, his followers, will endure, is not incompatible with glory. The road to glory leads through the valley of suffering. The disciples then, as we are now, are not expected to go through this alone, however. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he is with us. He did not go up with Moses and Elijah when the, the cloud spoke. He didn't leave the three disciples to walk through the valley alone. He walked with them willingly to the cross. He left the mountain of glory into the valley of suffering and he ultimately died on the cross. We should not allow the story of transfiguration to be one merely of glory. Yes, it is a glorious revelation, but it also speaks about another mountain. The Mount of Suffering, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified and died, where he was not surrounded by two Old Testament saints, but by two thieves on the cross, where his garments did not glisten in glory, but where his garments was taken from him in humiliation, where his glory wasn't beheld by his three followers, but where his suffering was seen by the three women next to the cross, and where he wasn't pronounced to be the Son of God in glory, but where the Roman centurion pronounced him to be the Son of God in his suffering. These parallels show us that the glory of Christ is intertwined with his role as the one who comes to suffer. And that's the second point I want to focus on in the sermon. is that the suffering Messiah is revealed in the valley. Where we see his glory on top of the mountain, we need to see his suffering. So the suffering servant revealed in the valley. On the mountain, we see these three glorious aspects of Christ's identity. The Son of Man, the greater Jewish leader who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, as well as the Son of God. And in verses 11 to 13, we see three important Old Testament figures revealed to these three men. We see Elijah, the Son of Man, and the suffering servant, all mentioned as Jesus speaks about his role as the one who comes to suffer. So follow with me in verse 9. It's important to note that Jesus commands the disciples to not mention this glorious moment to anyone. And I think it's important because many times when we have this glorious revelation, as the disciples would have had, we can succumb to this emotional adrenaline or emotionalism and not want to put the thing which we need to go to before us. So lest the disciples think that suffering was not in front of them, Jesus tries to calm them down, not so that they would hype up their friends about this glorious thing they saw, but that their minds may be drawn to that which lay before them, the road to suffering, the road to the cross. We see Jesus speaking about the role of Elijah, actually telling the disciples that, yes, you're correct. To be sure, Elijah does come first and he restores all things. The, the hope of the disciples in the role of Elijah wasn't wrong, but they missed the fact that suffering is as an important part of the day of the Lord 
as the glory to be revealed. Jesus then continues after speaking about Elijah to give us these three images of suffering. So firstly, he says that the Son of Man, taking on the position and the role or the vocation of the Son of Man out of the book of Daniel, he says that it is written that he must suffer, which is strange because Daniel never speaks of the Son of Man as one who must suffer and be rejected. This is language which we see in Isaiah when he speaks on the suffering servant. So when we look at the role of the Son of Man, which Jesus takes, we see that Jesus says, yes, I am the Son of Man, I am the glorious promised Messiah in Daniel, but I am also the suffering servant promised in Isaiah. And these two images would have been incompatible in the mind of any Jew. For them, the suffering servant and the Son of Man were two different persons. They viewed the suffering servant as, well, a suffering servant, and the Son of Man as the one who would redeem them, who would bring glory. Yet in this case, Jesus shows them that the Son of Man and the suffering servant are one and the same. He is the one who will redeem Israel, who is the glorious Messiah. It is also the suffering servant. And finally, the image that he gives them is the one of Elijah, who must suffer. Noting that Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished. And I would think that this statement would have sent shockwaves through these three men, because the Old Testament never speaks of Elijah as one who will suffer. There's no hint that Elijah would suffer on the coming day of the Lord. Yet we know that John the Baptist is the one to whom Jesus is referring to. John the Baptist is ultimately the one who prepared the way for the coming day of the Lord as Elijah. If Herod dealt severely with the forerunner of the Messiah, well, there shouldn't be any surprise then that he deals in a similar way with the Messiah who is revealed. I think it's important to note that this phrase, they have done to Elijah everything they wished, would have been a phrase that would have resonated with the original audience reading this book of Mark. History tells us that during the time of writing, Christians were under severe persecution under Nero. In a sense, Nero did whatever he wanted to Christians. So reading the words of Jesus, they would have seen that this suffering that they're undergoing was, well, Elijah, John the Baptist, underwent the same suffering, and the one whom they're following underwent the same suffering. This verse would resonate with many parts of the world today, whether it's Iran or Pakistan, where many Christians, as they follow themselves and their friends to the cross, as they follow Jesus to the cross, they find themselves exposed to the suffering of this world. I think it's important for us to remember that the inevitable suffering that results when we follow Jesus is not a sign of abandonment from God, but of fellowship with the Son of Man, who must suffer and be rejected. I'll repeat that, that I don't think that the inevitable suffering that we undergo as Christians is a sign of God's abandonment, but it is a sign of our fellowship with Jesus, who himself was suffered and rejected. Jesus here to his disciples designates his primary role as one of suffering, as represented by John the Baptist. Can you remember what Jesus told his followers when he was resurrected in Luke 24? 
the words of the resurrected Christ were, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into His glory? Similar to the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus spoke in His resurrected state, Mark speaks about this longed-for day of the Lord, promised by the Old Testament. He reminds us that this glory, this Messiah to be revealed, can only be revealed and purchased as He dies and suffers on the cross. So for us as modern readers, I think there are two important takeaways from this message of suffering and glory. The first looks at the passage in 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul reminds the Corinthians that Jesus was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live in Him by the power of God. So in a similar state of suffering and weakness, our hope is the glory and power of God. I mean, all of us, we would like to spend majority of our lives on top of the mountain, right? Beholding the glory of God. And this happens from time to time, right? The day of your salvation is one of these days where the glory of God is revealed to us, where our eyes are open to see Jesus. And throughout our lives, there are times and periods in our lives where the glory of God is manifested to us in a great way. But so much of modern Christianity promises us a life on top of this mountain, a life that's only glory, a life that is baked in glory with no suffering. This isn't the life that the Jesus we follow went through. This isn't the identity of Christ. All what he promises his followers. The reality of the Christian life, unfortunately, is that it's a life spent in the valley for the most part. Since our eternal hope, is that we will behold Christ in glory forever. So the Christ we saw when we became Christians, that is the Christ we will see face to face in glory. That is what we should remember in the valley. This is something which Christian, the pilgrim in the pilgrim's progress, struggled with as well. In the pilgrim's progress we are told that Christian began to doubt whether heaven or the celestial city actually exists. And the question asked to him then is, did you not see the celestial city on top of Mount Clear? Did you not see heaven on top of the mountain? As they were walking through the valley, the pilgrim forgot what he saw on top of the mountain. He saw the celestial city. He saw heaven. He saw the hope. Yet, as he was walking through the valley, the cares of life choked that vision out of him. Similar to the disciples. They saw Jesus right before that suffer in order to bring remembrance the things they saw on the mountain, to carry them into glory. And perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you're going through a valley of indwelling sin, suffering, persecution. Remember Christ, whom you have seen when He opened your eyes. He's faithful to carry you through the valley. Perhaps you're like Peter. Remember, he saw Jesus on the mountain being transfigured. He heard the voice of God, yet he denied Christ three times when he was in the valley. In the valley, Peter denies Jesus. Yet, Jesus still built his church on Peter. So there's hope for you. If you're going through the valley forgetting what you saw, there's hope. 
I pray that your faith may be restored, that you once again might have hope that you will see Christ in glory. Perhaps you've never seen Christ. Perhaps me speaking about this glory of Christ being revealed on top of the mountain is something that you've never seen or tasted. Perhaps your life is marked by selfishness, trying to fill yourself with the things of this world, but ultimately you're empty. Christ is not far. His arm is not too short to save. Draw near to Him, for He's faithful to save. You cannot do it yourself. Just like the disciples could not see Jesus as the Son of God by themselves, you need God to reveal Christ to you. And I pray, if you're sitting here today and you've never seen Christ, that God would do that to you and for you as well. And then secondly, we would do well to heed the voice of God, to listen to Christ, to listen to Him. It's not enough to see Jesus and just go along our merry way and act as if nothing happened, not listen to Him. The Gospel of Mark is ultimately the identity of Christ, who He is and what it means to follow Him. It's important for us to know who He is and know His identity. But it's just important for us to follow Him. We should follow Him. We should listen to Him. He is our King. He tells us how to live. If you consider yourself a Christian here today, you should listen to Him. How do we do this? Well, I would say a good place coming to church, hearing the Word of God preached, but also reading the Word. That's the purpose of our sermons. Whenever Matt, myself, or Peter preach, we want to teach you what the Word says, but also how to read the Word and understand it. Sermons should be like honey on your lips, that you get a taste of God's Word, a taste of what God says. But you should ultimately spend time with the Word, the beehive itself. You should go to the source of the honey day in and day out, that you may taste and see the glory of God. You should spend time in the Word of God, so that you might listen to Christ. How will we know what He says if we do not read and hear His Word? So at the start of the sermon, I told you that I'm a, I'm a very visual person. You know, I would have loved to be at this transfiguration. I would have loved to be at the crucifixion and the resurrection as well. But I realized that our hope as Christians is exactly this. We will see Jesus in glory. We will see Him face to face. We do not have to hope or think how this transfiguration could have been. We will see Christ in glory. We will see Him as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets and law. We will see Him face to face one day. The glory which was revealed on top of the mountain is our hope. As we walk through the valley of life, as we walk through suffering and persecution, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who will carry us into glory. Let's pray.